Well, good morning and uh, happy Mother's Day to everyone. Uh, we're thankful as Ted shepherded us in prayer. We're thankful for the mothers that the Lord has given us. And yet at the same time, even more thankful are we that through the blood of Christ, He's brought us into a spiritual family that is eternal and that overflows with the grace of God and that is cared for by a Heavenly Father. Well, this morning I want to take you back a little bit to start with, to go back to 60 or 62 AD. And it's a time when the Apostle Paul is a prisoner under house arrest in Rome. And during this time, he writes a series of letters to the churches in Asia Minor to which he has ministered to and cared for. And these have become known as the prison epistles. The epistle to the church in Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, and then also the personal letter to Philemon. And what the Apostle Paul explains in these prison epistles is though he is in chains, he is overwhelmed and he's filled with gratitude and joy. Why? It's because of what God has done in his life and in the lives of those he's writing to. In Colossians 1, 13-14, he writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And though that sounds very theological, and that sounds to some degree, very abstract, this invisible domain of darkness, this domain or kingdom of light that belongs to the beloved Son, this forgiveness and this redemption that is spoken, but how can we see it? Where is it real? For Paul, this is everything. And for the Apostle Paul, this is what gives him overwhelming joy and gratitude to the Lord so much that it overwhelms and overshadows his personal circumstances of being a prisoner under house arrest, awaiting trial before Caesar and possibly losing his life. And in a nutshell, this is the good news of God's word. This is the good news of God's word that we see Paul actually living out. It's the good news of what God has done through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ to save sinners like the Apostle Paul and like you and I. It's the good news that in Christ God has set his children free from the kingdom of darkness and given us a new kingdom, given us a new king, given us a new life, all of which are right with God in contrast to this world that we live in, which is wrong with God. And we see in Paul's life through those prison epistles that this is something, this is a truth, this is good news that really affects the entirety of Paul's life. In fact, you could say the entirety of Paul's life really bears witness to this truth that this is true and this is real. This is not some abstract pie-in-the-sky cult. 
And in fact, if we go back a little bit further, this is the life and the kingdom that Jesus, as the Messiah and King, is teaching us about in his Sermon on the Mount. This is what we've been going through. Jesus, through his Sermon on the Mount, has been teaching us about life in the kingdom. About being salt and light in a fallen world. He's teaching us about a life and a kingdom of new hearts and new desires and new relationships that bear witness to something infinitely good. A new and righteous king. And as we think about that, a new and righteous king, a king who rules righteously, a righteous rule, that there is a rule and an order and an oversight in our lives that is right with God, that is good, so that every aspect of our lives, as we've talked about, our desires, our relationships, our friends, our work, the things that we do, our marriages, our families, every aspect of these lives is a reflection that what is ruling our life and that who is ruling our life is someone and something infinitely good and right and holy and true Unlike the rest of the world, whose lives and whose kingdoms are being ruled by anything and everything that is dark and deceitful and distorted. Well, so what? So what? And what difference does it make in your life and mine? And what I'd like to do, really, for the next four weeks is for us to take a pause from the Sermon on the Mount and what we've heard from Jesus and what He's brought into our lives and to consider what difference does this make in our life? What are we supposed to do with this? So you have a new desire, a new heart, a new relationship, a new king and a new kingdom. What difference does that make in our lives and what are we supposed to do with that? And did Jesus come and die on the cross and rise again to give us some life that we just share once a week when we come on Sundays or when we come to a Bible study? And really the heart of the question here is what is our calling as children of God and as citizens of heaven? If indeed we belong to heaven, if indeed we share this king and this new life and this good news that we're no longer part of the domain of darkness, but we are now children of light and citizens of God's kingdom and citizens of heaven. If this is true, what is our calling as we live and work in a world filled with kingdoms that are anything but heavenly? And as we go through the Gospels, you'll see, in fact, Jesus addresses this question over and over and over and over and over again. And as you go through the epistles, this is very much what Paul is addressing. And as we come to this pivotal point, which we're going to talk about this morning in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus spends time with his disciples just after he has risen from the grave, but before he ascends to heaven... This is the focus of his final words to them. And in doing so, as he talks about the kingdom of God and their role or their calling in the kingdom of God, 
very much he begins to show them this is the entirety of his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection, and everything that he has been preparing the disciples for. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And we'll read the first 11 verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, That the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, you'll recall, as we've referred to many times, that in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry, his gospel ministry, with his proclamation and command, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or it has come near to you. Or it's drawing near to you. Or it is approaching. And then he goes on and commands the disciples. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then as we move after his crucifixion and resurrection. It's with these God-breathed words and acts. Luke shows us that the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom, does not end with Jesus' death And resurrection. And many times that seems to be where we stop. We get saved. We come to church. Over. Done with. But Luke is showing us. This work that Christ begins. That really is the summation of the entirety of the Old Testament. And all of God's promises. And that begins with this call to repent. Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is just the first chapter in the good news. That there is more to come. And the book of Acts is really an account of the second chapter in the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is also a second chapter as Jesus is showing the disciples in their lives and in their calling and in the role that they have within the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Jesus is sharing or talking to them about in Acts chapter 1 through 11. And I think it's worth noting, what is the top priority of Jesus prior to his death as you go through John 15 or 14 through 17? 
He's about to be killed. He's about to be crucified. It's the care and instruction of his disciples. And it is very much the care and instruction of his disciples of what they're to do and how they're to carry out their calling after his crucifixion. And here we see prior to Jesus' ascension into heaven, the 40 days that he spends, he has a top priority. It is to appear to his disciples, to let them know he is still alive after his suffering. But then the top priority and focus is to talk to them, verse 3, about the kingdom of God. And in fact, he's drawing a direct connection of all of these things, the entire context. What this is all about, this is all bearing witness to the kingdom of God. Now, what do we mean by the kingdom of God? By the kingdom of God, in a very condensed version, we're talking about the righteous rule of the sovereign and eternal creator king over all things. His righteous rule. And this, of course, includes his realm. His territory, his domain of authority, and the citizens and those who belong to him. And this, of course, includes his righteous rule, that he rules according to his word. But the entirety of this, the good news of Jesus Christ, is really a testimony about God's kingdom and God's kingdom plan for his People And this is very specifically what he wants to talk to the disciples about. And he makes the point. He did not die and rise again. And he did not come to these disciples to make them better people. He did not save them to make the world a better place. I know that sounds terrible. But bear with me and I think you'll see where I'm going. And if we view that, we are on the wrong track. And this is why Jesus is spending the time with his disciples. And as we think about our calling, so often as believers, we think the purpose of my salvation is to have a better marriage, to have a better family, to make the world a better place. To raise my kids into godly citizens so that they go out and become good people and the world is a better place because of them. Or my participation in church. And even here, Jesus points out, the big picture point of his salvation, of his people, is not to plant churches. I know that sounds terrible. I'm going to go one step further. It's not even to make disciples. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm saying. We have a tendency to reduce the gospel to something that serves me well. And Jesus is showing his disciples, you are part of something infinitely greater and infinitely bigger than a better life, a better church, a better family. They have their places. But there is something infinitely greater. And if you miss out on this, you're going to miss everything, including your calling. From the beginning, Jesus shows his disciples in this passage. He has chosen them, he has trained them, he has saved them to be by the power of his Holy Spirit. His apostles and his witnesses for the kingdom of heaven. And it is in them and through them 
that God will spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And he will spread it to the ends of the earth. In preparation for what? Christ's return and Christ's restoration of his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And this, brothers and sisters, is the good news of God's kingdom. And this is the good news of their calling. They are not car salesmen. They are not simply men who are called to knock on doors or hand out gospel tracts. And I don't want to diminish that. That's important work. But all of that is for nothing if we don't see the bigger picture of what we are bearing witness to. We're living in a time and era where too many people feel, because I do this, because I do this, because I do this, I'm earning merit in the kingdom of heaven. I'm doing a good job. I'm a righteous person. But it begins and ends with God's plans and God's purposes for our lives, for our families, for our relationships. An apostle is an official who is appointed and sent by his king to faithfully represent and bring his king's message to a foreign kingdom, similar to a diplomat or an ambassador. And a witness comes from the Greek word martyrus or martyr. And it refers to a legal rule or office. It is an official witness, one who has been called by a king to honestly and faithfully testify and share publicly in a court of law what he or she knows to be true. Now let's focus for a moment on the lives of these disciples. God's purpose for them, as Jesus is pointing out, is not simply to pass on a message. It's that the entirety of their lives, including everything that Jesus has taught them about in the Sermon on the Mount and all his instruction, is to faithfully represent him. It's to faithfully represent not their agenda or their programs, or their desires or wishes or wants, but they are to faithfully represent God's agenda. And they are faithfully called to bear witness, sometimes in hostile territories or unwelcome territories, not their message, and not their words, and not their agenda, but what they know to be true. And this raises the question, what is the message and testimony that Jesus calls his disciples to faithfully represent and bring to the world by the power of his Holy Spirit as citizens and children of his kingdom? Now at its simplest, as we go through this passage, at its simplest, the message and testimony is that Jesus is not dead, he is alive. That he is indeed the crucified and risen Lord of all. And let me stop there for a minute. As we think about our summer 
and where we're going, as we think about the decisions that we need to make, about the places we need to go to, the things we need to do to take care of our kids, the people we're going to see. How does that all connect every aspect of our lives with a testimony and a message that Jesus is not dead, but He is indeed alive? That He is indeed the crucified and risen Lord of all. And as people see us and as we interact in our communities and our places of work, what is it about us that is communicating to them the good news of the kingdom of God and the truth that Christ is not dead, that He is risen? Well, as we walk through this passage, I believe there are three necessary or essential truths that Jesus' death and resurrection and the entirety of his life point to. There are three necessary truths about the kingdom of God, I believe, that the disciples are commissioned with, but by extension as we live as citizens of heaven, that we are all called to bear witness to, not only in our words, but our deeds. And the first is that God is the holy and sovereign creator king. God is the holy and sovereign creator king. We live in a world that alleges that God is a myth or a rationalization. He's created by primitive men to explain the world away and to justify their whatever they want to do. And as we've alluded to in weeks past with regards to our desires, our genders, our relationships, essentially we answer to no other authority but ourselves. This is progressively where we're going. And it's in this way, even though that term king is outdated, and we don't deal with it because we're Americans and we live in a democracy, if we're honest with ourselves and we consider what is the definition of a king, one who has the right and power to rule, we're living in a world where we are encouraged and we all try to function as kings as individuals who possess the right and authority to rule over whatever sphere or kingdom we can get our hands on, be it our marriages, our families, our careers, our jobs, our educations. And by extension, just about every aspect of our lives. And sort of the contemporary word or description of this is having control, right? Control over our marriages, control over our families, control over our careers, control over our worship, control. It's the right to be king. And it's the right to have a kingdom and a sphere and an area of control. But in Matthew 4, when Jesus begins his gospel ministry with that proclamation, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has come near. He makes it clear that we really have it backwards. That ultimately, the kings and kingdoms of our rationalization and imagination and justifications are our kingdoms. And this idea of control is a myth that is sold by our technology, our entertainment, and our education that if you just do A, B, C, and D, you go to the right college, you get the right job, you get the right, you'll get the right car, you'll get the right wife, you'll get the right house, it goes on and on and on. 
But from the very beginning, the testimony of Jesus' ministry is, well, you have it really backwards. Because there is ultimately only one true person who is in complete control of all things. And that is the God of the Bible who created you and I. And that, of course, is the testimony of Genesis onwards. And that's the testimony, quite frankly, of the entire Word of God. Where God refers to himself over and over again as a king and as the king. We see this in Psalm 24.10. The Lord is the king of glory. Psalm 10.16. The Lord is king forever. And as you go to Paul's teaching, and as you go all the way through, over and over and over again, There is this testimony where God has chosen to reveal himself as the ultimate and one true person who has the authority and the right to rule over all things. First, obviously, because he has created all things. But secondly, because he is holy. He is set apart. He is above all creation. Nothing compares. In purity, goodness, and holiness, and in power. And even more so, he has the right, because it is by his word that he sustains and holds all things together. That every aspect of this world, what's holding it all together, and keeping it on course, and making things happen, from top to bottom, is God's sovereign word. He's not a landlord or an absent father who's created and put out a bunch of kids and then walked away and we're here to figure it out on our own. And the testimony of God's word is the reason we have a hard time seeing that is because of our sin that blinds us. And we're going to deal with this in our second point. But for now, as we come back and we see the entirety of Jesus' ministry from his Sermon on the Mount, to his parables, all the way to the cross and resurrection afterwards, the testimony of the entirety of his life and his teaching and preaching, it's all about the kingdom of God. It's all about God's righteous rule. Well, why does he do this? Well, in the Old Testament, the testimony comes through over and over again. The reason you're in the mess you're in is because you have placed your trust in the kings and kingdom of men. And there is only one true king and one true kingdom that is in fact good news and that can save you. And that is the king and kingdom of God. Because he alone is righteous and he alone is holy. And every other ruler in this world is fallen and depraved and sinful. And they will exploit you and take advantage of you and crush you. And so that's the plea of the prophets through the Old Testament over and over again. Why are you trusting and making alliances with Egypt and Assyria? And why are you trying to do it the world's way? Don't you see? There is only one king who is worthy to rule. And that king is the king of heaven. That is the God of the Bible who created you and to the children of Israel has saved you for himself. And as Jesus comes in his ministry, the point that he is making 
is that he has come not to represent himself, he has come entirely to represent his Father who is in heaven. And not to fulfill his agenda, but to do his Father's work and to speak his Father's words. He is here to represent the righteous rule of his Father. And the miracles he does, and the teachings that he does, and every aspect of his ministry is showing the world what God's righteous rule looks like here on earth. But as we consider all of this, as Jesus speaks to his disciples before his ascension, and after his crucifixion, he points out to them, nowhere is there a greater testimony that God is the holy and sovereign King of all. Nowhere is there a greater testimony to the kingdom of God that God is in charge and He is ruling and He is not absent than in the death and crucifixion and the resurrection of His holy and beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Because it is there that we see everything that this world will do is not greater than God's promises and plans which God always faithfully carries out. And that ultimately in the midst of darkness, God is working good and his righteous rule will prevail. And so Jesus is connecting this for the disciples and saying, as you bear witness to my resurrection that I am alive, it's more than just, here's Joe Blow who got crucified, just one more criminal. You are bearing witness to the truth that God's kingdom plan that he began from Genesis chapter 3. Talking about a seed of woman whose heel will be bruised, but he will crush the serpent's head. You are bearing witness to the truth and reality that God is not absent. He is present and he is greater than sin and death. And he is still very much in control and he is working out his kingdom. And this is what he calls his disciples through all their preparation, through all the things that he said to them, to bear witness to. Why? Well, it brings us to our second point for this morning. It's necessary because we live in a world that hates and rejects God's righteous rule. We live in a world that hates and rejects God's righteous rule. And it's for this reason that we so desperately, desperately, desperately need not our rules and not our kingdoms, but we need the righteous rule of God to come and save us. We live in a world that typically believes that people deep down inside are mostly good. And that the things that are bad in our world are predominantly just a few bad apples. That's typically what we say when things head south, right? You know, it's the people like Hitler. It's the people like Saddam Hussein. It's the people like, I have to remember the Koreans, right? Kim Jong-un, okay? It's those handful of police officers who killed George Floyd. It's a handful of people. Basically, people deep in down inside were mostly good. And even as we go to the social justice movement and 
all of the other aspects of all these protests, even though they're saying, okay, it's systemic. At the end of the day, they're saying, okay, well, it's these systemic beliefs and these systemic structures of people who are in a position of authority. That's what's oppressing us. And so what is the trajectory of the world to save the world? We need to replace the bad apples. We need to replace the bad systems. We need to replace the bad beliefs. And so we need to re-educate and we need to replace and we need to do all these education programs in your place of work and in the government. And if someone who's the head of a, a, a professional sports team gets busted for saying or doing the wrong thing, well, they just have to go to a program for 30 days or whatever and they need to just get re-educated if they're a star and then they can come back and everything is good. Because people deep down inside, they just want to do the right thing. They just need the help. They just need the education. They just need the structures and the systems. And if we extend that to church, it's we just need the right programs and we just need the right ministries and we just need to replace a few of those bad apples and get the right people in key positions and then everything's going to be fine. But the testimony of God's word, Jeremiah 17, 9, is that the problem is with the hearts of men. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And Jeremiah is making the point to the old covenant people of God. The problem with our world is not just a few bad apples. It's not just the belief system or the social structure. The problem is the heart of man. The heart of man for each one of us without exception. It's not just a little bad. It's deceitful, it's corrupted, it's cursed, and it is rotting. And the proof of that is the persistent hatred and rejection of God and His righteous rule and His kingdom. And by extension, it's the persistent hatred in our world. Do you want to know where it comes from? Shootings, conflict, racial discrimination, whatever you want to call it. At the heart of it, it is a heart that refuses to submit to the authority and righteousness of God. At the heart of it, it is a heart and desire to say, I can do whatever I want. My will be done. My kingdom come. And you can apply that to your desires, your relationships, to your genders, whatever. The proof of the rotten heart is a persistent hatred and rejection of God and His righteous rule. And it begins with Adam and Eve in the garden. And it continues throughout the history of humanity. And this is the beginning of the kings and kingdoms of men. And it goes through the history of Israel as you go through the entire Old Testament. And it comes to the history of the modern and postmodern world. Where the focus is, okay... Let's just deny and replace and let's persecute and erase anyone or anything that represents God's righteous rule in our lives. Now does that seem far-fetched, brothers and sisters, in an overstatement? Just consider for a moment our entertainment, our politics, our sports, our social media, our careers, our education. And ask yourself to what extent is there any desire or inclination in any of those to consider the righteous authority and rule of God? 
It exists primarily to erase the very existence of God in our midst. And it's nothing new. So we go back to Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. David writes, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against who? The Lord and against His anointed. King David's saying it's everyone from top to bottom. It's not just a system. It's not just a structure. It's just not just a few bad apples. It's everyone from top to bottom. And then as we come to the epistle of Romans, the Apostle Paul walks us through this same truth. And he shows us this is our need for the gospel, for good news. He shows us in Romans 1.21. He explains that everyone is without excuse for their ungodliness and unrighteousness. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But instead, verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They just erase God. And what is the proof of this universal hatred and rejection and denial of the truth of who God is? That He is the holy and sovereign King of all. Well, Paul gets to that in Romans 3.23. He says, the proof is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin, our disobedience, our acts, our ungodliness, our unrighteousness... They are just evidence or manifestations of a heart that hates and rejects God's authority in our lives. His righteous rule. But as we come to the Gospels, the greatest proof of sick and deceitful hearts that hate and reject God's righteous rule is what? It's the crucifixion of God's holy and eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And it's that crucifixion. Romans, Jews, but by extension the entirety of the world where no one, not even his disciples, are willing to stop it. Not even his disciples. And the overwhelming testimony as we look at the crucifixion, and this is what Jesus is calling his disciples to bear witness to, is that we are unable, brothers and sisters, to save ourselves. No matter how many education classes you go to, no matter how many Sunday school classes you go to, no matter how many sermons you listen to, at the end of the day, we cannot save ourselves from our deceitful and sick hearts. And brothers and sisters, this is what our Lord and Savior is calling His disciples to bear witness to. Not just in their words, but their deeds and the entirety of their lives. Their ministries, their families, their relationships. And we have to think about this. Mother's Day, as we parent our children, as we interact with family members, some days they're easy, many days, some days they're not, right? And we get frustrated and we struggle and we lose hope. And I know this sounds really dark, right? The world as a whole hates God. But when we see it within the context that we belong to the King, 
And that He has saved us, not because of anything we've done. And that we once were that child, throwing the tantrum, refusing and rejecting, not just our parents' rule or instruction, but the Lord's. That we were that college student. That we were that whatever. And it's only the grace of God and Christ's coming And through the power of His Holy Spirit giving us a new heart and bringing us into His kingdom and then taking time with us step by step by step to instruct us on what His kingdom is all about. New hearts, new desires, new relationships and correcting us and disciplining us. I think once we begin to walk in that truth, walk in that truth, Christ, through the power of the word of the cross and through the power of His Holy Spirit, begins to set our hearts free. That there is a king who is in control. We're not alone. That there is someone who knows and understands. And there is someone who has orchestrated all things for good. And there is someone who is able to save the greatest of sinners. How? Through repentance and faith in Him. One way and one way alone, brothers and sisters. It's His terms and His authority and His rule, not ours. And this is why it's so critical. And this, I believe, is why Jesus comes back to this over and over again. We believe we can get into the kingdom on anybody's terms and anybody's rules. We want the blessing. We want the love. We want the family. We want to be able to sing. But are we willing to submit to the authority of God's kingdom rather than my kingdom? And the real question and test comes when we're forced to decide, am I going to let go of my kingdom? Is Christ's kingdom worth it? And this brings us to our final point for this morning. God's righteous kingdom is coming. Brothers and sisters, until we begin to see that we are a people who hate naturally and resist the righteous rule of God, until we begin to see that we're living in a world that naturally hates and resists the righteous rule of God. And how many times as parents have we been with our children when they're struggling and they're having a hard day? They're tired, maybe they're hangry. And we say, okay, it's time to have a bath and get ready for bed. And you as your parent, you know what they need, right? is they need that rest and restoration and food, and we're going to have to just wait until the good Lord through nature is going to restore things and put those right things. And how often have you experienced that child resist, 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 even screaming to the point of tantrums? Speaking in generalities, right? I don't want to finger any children in particular. Eyewitness experience. But you go through that and you see how often there's that resistance, resistance, resistance to a parent's authority in those times to bring that child, quote unquote, home. To bring them to that place where they need to be. And in the beginning, as children, they don't get it. 
But the heart's desire of a parent is that one day they would say, look, you may feel that this is all terrible, but you can trust me because I love you and I'm a faithful, God-honoring parent who only desires what's best for you. And there's going to come a time in the future where you are going to have to just trust me. It's not going to feel right, not going to look right. Your flesh is going to push against it. But the only thing that matters is I am a parent who honors the Lord, trusts in his promises, and in turn upholds the righteous rule of God. And that's where Jesus, I believe, begins to go with his disciples in verse 1-6 after he's presented himself alive to his disciples. And he commands them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The disciples ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom, God's righteous rule to Israel? Now, with this question, the disciples are bearing witness to what they know to be true. That though we live in this fallen world, And these fallen kingdoms of darkness. The God who has raised his holy and beloved son from the dead is still king. And unlike the false kings of this world, this God keeps his promises. And the question that the disciples are raising and the conviction that they stand on is if God has made a promise, the question is not if this will happen, it's when is this going to happen. The question, brothers and sisters, so often that we struggle with in our lives, our marriages, our homes, and families, many times, is God really going to do this? He's promised it. But we see with the disciples, the question is not if God is going to fulfill his promise to make things right. The question is, when is it going to happen? He is going to do this. And this includes all of the promises throughout the Old Testament that he is going to make things right. He is going to restore his righteous rule on earth as it is in heaven. And he's going to begin first with Israel, and then he's going to go for the world. But when he does, the promise is there that the unrighteous, those who hated and rejected God's righteous rule and salvation, are going to burn. And the righteous, those who, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, receive God's righteous rule now, They will live as children of God. They will live as citizens of heaven. And they are going to participate in God's complete restoration of his righteous kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Now the Apostle Paul summarizes these promises in 1 Corinthians 15.22. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then in verse 24, he says, then comes the end. When he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So they're looking at this and saying, okay, Jesus, you promised, God promised, you're going to make everything right. Is it going to happen now? Because you just said the Holy Spirit is going to come. We're going to be filled. We're going to be your witnesses. You've risen from the grave. God has kept his promises so far. When is this promise going to be completed? You have promised. 
that this isn't just for us and our little community. You are coming to make things right first in Israel to bring God's righteous rule back in Israel and then by extension to the world. And this is going to be the preparation for the completion of all of God's plans. And so the question comes up, well, why does God delay? Well, Paul explains in Romans 2.4. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And the Apostle Peter also says the same thing in 2 Peter 3.9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What's repentance, brothers and sisters? Repentance is submitting to the righteous rule of God. It's saying, okay, I've blown it. I'm not going to run things anymore. You're the king now. It's going to happen according to your word and your way, not my way. Peter goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And these are the promises that the disciples are talking to Jesus about when they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And what's Jesus' response? Verse 7. He says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. What's he saying? God the Father is ultimately king. He's the one who's in charge. This is above your pay grade. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Witnesses of what? That the one who the world has crucified is no longer dead, but he is alive. That God is still the sovereign king and Lord over all things. That the world stands in judgment because it hates God and it rejects his authority. But God is good and he is faithful. His kingdom and his restoration of the world is coming. This is what they're called to bear witness to. Why? Because of God's love and compassion for sinners. To give them an opportunity to repent and to turn from their sin and to come and run to the righteous rule of God. How? With our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as King, submitting to His authority and finding in Christ A Savior whose yoke, when it's put upon you, is not heavy, but it is light. Because he is humble and he is gentle of spirit. And for those who are weary and heavy laden of living in a world of fallen kings and kingdoms, they will find rest, first here in this world, but when Christ comes to participate in the restoration of all things. Now let me bring this back and close this with the Sermon on the Mount. What connection does this have? We are not apostles. Acts and what's being described is descriptive, not prescriptive. But as you go through the rest of the scriptures and you go through the epistles, the Apostle Paul will say repeatedly, 
Saints, you're to walk worthy of your calling. You're to walk worthy of the gospel. And time together with the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ calls you to be light and salt in this dark and fallen world, we see, as Dr. MacArthur points out, why has God left us here? Why has he not come? Why has Ethan asked me, well, if God could save everybody, why doesn't he just save everybody and do it right away and just get it all over with? It's because of his patience and his kindness for people who belong to him who are his children who are not yet saved. He's left us here to be witnesses in our lives, in our words, our deeds, our desires, our relationships, the choices that we will make this summer of where we go on vacation, who we speak to, how we spend our time, the careers that we pursue, the places that we spend our time. He's left us here in the entirety of that to bear witness that we are not ruled by the sin and darkness of this world that hates God and every good thing. But instead, our lives are ruled by a king who is righteous and holy and good and has compassion and mercy for sinners. Our lives are to bear witness that this world stands in judgment. And for that reason, we will come into conflict because people will not approve of the decisions and the choices and the paths that you make because it makes them feel guilty and convicts them that they are living on a path of destruction and selfishness. Our lives are to bear witness that God's kingdom is indeed coming and our priorities are different. And the burden of our hearts is not what works well for me, Our burden and priority is to share the good news that the king who has come to bring God's kingdom to earth is still alive and present and he offers forgiveness and mercy and grace to all who would turn from their unrighteous rule and come to him as king. He's left us here, brothers and sisters, as an act of mercy that the entirety of our lives would bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, may our lives be a reflection of the good news of your kingdom, that the desperate need that this world has is not another program. It's not even another pastor. The desperate need of this world is that they would know you and have you as their righteous King and Lord of all. In your name we pray, amen.